All right, with further, without further ado, I want to have you uh, turn in your Bibles or your devices um, to uh, Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, um, if you're here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we were in Acts chapter 17, looking at a, a couple of different approaches that the Apostle Paul took in relating the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, to those uh, who were his audience. The first audience, as we saw a couple weeks ago, were Jews in a synagogue. And then the second audience was a very, very different audience, the intellectuals, um, philosophers of, of Athens. But the one thing that was the same, even though the approaches that the Apostle Paul took were different, the one thing that remained the same was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we come to um, Acts chapter 18, and what we see um, this morning is the confidence that we may have in relating the gospel of Christ to others. Um, as far as God is concerned, um, evangelism is never an empty enterprise, but it will always bear fruit in the lives of those on whom God has placed his hand, and that too this boggles the mind from all eternity. So we're going to consider um, that encouraging news, and then we're just going to have one other sermon on the series on evangelism next week. So let's draw our attention now to Acts chapter 18. Paul now moves from the city of Athens to a major metro center, and that is Corinth. So Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, I want to draw your attention especially to verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. We're going to end our reading there. I want to draw your attention especially, really, um, although we're going to deal with the context somewhat extensively here, but there's one phrase that it really gets the core of what we're dealing with here tonight or um, this morning, and that is the last phrase of verse 10, where the Lord says, I have many people in this city who are my people. So essentially, he's telling the Apostle Paul, there's no empty evangelistic enterprises. Keep on speaking, because they're mine. And through the gospel, I want you to draw them in. 
So this morning we look at the confidence that we have in the gospel. Now, I am uh, assuming that most of us, I would almost dare say all of us, but I'll just be safe and say most of us have people that we know that are not all that in tune with the things that we have in common here. Jesus, the gospel, some of the distinctives of our Reformation convictions. Uh, they, they may be friends who really have shown not a whole lot of interest in the things of God for some time. They may be closer than a friend. It may be a, a son or a daughter, uh, a dad or a mom. Uh, it may be, I don't know, brother, sister, what have you. And they, for some time, have shown that they really don't want to have anything to do with the gospel, nothing to do with the Christian faith. And they wish you'd just stop talking about it. And maybe you can think of individuals who are workers or fellow employees or what have you that kind of know where you're coming from. And quite frankly, they just wish you'd just kind of shut up about Jesus sometimes and just kind of, you know, like of Americans view faith, just view it as a personal matter. So just kind of keep it to yourself. We find ourselves in different scenarios. And perhaps you're wondering here this morning, you know, how should I feel about that? I've oftentimes thought about that. How, how, how should I feel about that? Should I, I don't know, should I be angry? Um, should I be sad? Uh, should I simply be uh, quietly resigned to the fact that that's the way that it is? You know, it's interesting when you take a look at the Psalms. The author of Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms, has, interestingly, two different reactions to people who show very little interest in the things of God. The first reaction is one of uh, anger and frustration, where the psalmist says, I am this is what he says, I'm disgusted, O Lord, with the faithless, because they do not keep your commands. And then there's another time in that very same psalm where he experiences sadness, and he says, my eyes shed streams of water, O Lord, because... They do not heed your testimonies. And so we have anger and frustration on one hand. He has a shedding of tears, a flowing of tears. So it shows a sensitivity to the gospel, to the laws of God, because people will not embrace the commands of God and his claims on their life. But, and maybe you've experienced some of those yourselves. But there is a, there's a third disposition that I want you to think about. And that's not anger or frustration or even weeping, but it's a quiet calm, knowing that that son or daughter or mom or dad or friend or what have you, that, that God may not be done with them yet. Man, they may be hardened. They may give you lip. But God may not be done with them because if God's sights are on them, if the hound of heaven is in time going to seek their scent and overcome their hardness and the rebellion, then he's going to draw them in. And he's going to draw them in by various means. One of the primary means, perhaps, may be through you. Okay? And we find that kind of encouragement here, actually, in this text. We find ourselves in the city of Corinth this morning with the Apostle Paul. 
And, you know, Corinth was a tough place for the gospel. It was a very uh, dark place. It was a, a place of commercial activity. It was uh, a place of pagan spirituality. And it was a place of crass immorality. So first of all, it was a, a place of uh, commercial activity. In other words, there was a lot of business there. You know, Corinth was actually a, a major and very important city at this time. And actually, it was more important than Athens. A lot of times when you and I think of Athens, perhaps today, we probably likely know it's a pretty good-sized city. It's a major city in Greece. And it seems to be a major city here with the Apostle Paul because he goes to Athens and he speaks to this intellectual center, to individuals, to pagans who don't know anything about the gospel. And yet, we have to realize that Athens was kind of a, what we would call a small town today, only about, as commentators tell us, about 10,000 people. The surprising things you find out. Even, even when I was looking at the passage and doing research on it, I thought Athens was much bigger. No, it's only about 10,000 people. So we all keep learning. But then he moves from Athens to a major commercial and business center of Corinth. Corinth was a much larger city, at that time a much more significant city, because it stood between the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. So the, it was, in a sense, it was a business crossroads. A lot of business was coming into Corinth. And so it's, it's rather interesting that it was, it was a big place, as we're going to see, it was a somewhat hostile place. And it's interesting to note that as the gospel is beginning to spread after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, while he did not exclude, uh, exclude small towns or small villages, his primary focus was on the cities. And so we need to remember that living in one of the major metro centers in the United States. The Apostle Paul would have come to a place like this because cities are cultural engines that have a great influence in the country in which they reside. So that's the Apostle Paul. So it's a, it's a more could be said on this area, but it's a place of commercial activity. It's a place of also pagan spirituality, meaning there were a lot of temples and there was a lot of altars to, to pagan gods, right? So you have like the god Apollo and the god Athena and the god of Asclepius, the god of healing, and the god of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and and Hermes, and Hera, and, and various gods of these sorts. And these, these temples and these altars were all around. And so my point is, is that when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he had a lot of competition. There's a long history of paganism rooted in that city, but nonetheless, God says, I want you to go there and I want you to bring the gospel. And finally this, Corinth was a place of crass immorality. And for, if you've been raised in the faith for some time, you probably knew that already. Um, when you take a look at uh, the letters of First and Second Corinthians in the Bible, the Apostle Paul is oftentimes addressing sexual immorality um, in, among those who were converted to the Christian faith. Even after that, they were struggling with this kind of thing. The, the, the temple of Aphrodite, goddess of love, was there, which commentators tell us was staffed by over 1,000 prostitutes. And one other thing, Corinth, Corinth, as you can imagine with what I've just said, had a reputation, kind of like Las Vegas has a reputation, right? I don't know if Phoenix has much of a reputation, but Las Vegas certainly does. And you think of the strip there, right? And all the gambling and all the, the, the sexual stuff that goes on there. Well, that, that was a lot like Corinth, right? So if someone was living either in Corinth or possibly outside of Corinth, and they were living in what we call unvirtuous life, or rather immoral life, it was not uncommon for people to say, oh, he or she, they live like a Corinthian. That's the kind of reputation it had. <laughs> so humanly speaking, you know, it's not the kind of place where you, you probably think I'd, I'd bring the gospel. Because it's, it's very easy for us with certain people or certain places to kind of write them off. Like, eh, it's too dark. 
you know. But you don't write him off if you have confidence in the gospel. So, at the directive of the Lord, and because he had confidence in the gospel, the Apostle Paul goes to Corinth. Where does he go first? All right, take a look at verse 5. He's with Silas and Timothy now, co-laborers in the gospel. Chapter 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. Notice, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, it's very interesting that once again, like he's done before, when he first comes to a city, the first place he goes is a Jewish synagogue. Because he himself is an ethnic Jew. And the Gospels, the Bible says, goes to the Jew first, and then it goes to the non-Jew, the Gentile. So he goes into the synagogue. But look at the reaction that he receives. They opposed him and reviled him. So he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That is the non-Jew. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So, so what he does is he, he, he goes to his own. He goes to his peeps. He goes to his own people. And he speaks to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But like so many times before, they don't want to have anything to do with it. So he gets fed up and he says, okay, you don't want it. I'm going to go to those who will want it. I'm going to go to the non-Jew. So we pick up with verse 7. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, notice, ah, here's a contrast, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Boy, you must, you'd think that this, this would be a great encouragement. Imagine you're in a situation, the Apostle Paul, the Lord called you to bring the gospel, and your own people go like this, right? They, they butt heads with the good news of Jesus. <coughs> so you go on, and you go to a different people, and they actually embrace it. And, and what do you know? In the midst of dark Corinth, some people actually embrace the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and they go on to be baptized. I want to suggest something to you here. I'm going to suggest to you, and various commentators bring this out, that at this point, the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to be rejoicing, but he's living with frustration and with fear. Why do I say that? Because the very first thing we read, after many Corinthians believe and are baptized, the Lord said to Paul one night, in a vision. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I want to suggest to you something, and that is this, that the, the reason why here we find the Lord coming and intervening in Paul's life by means of a vision and says, you don't have to be afraid, is this. You have to understand what leads up to this point. And think about what we've been covering over the past couple of weeks. You know, Paul, um, before he went, a couple weeks ago, we look at this, where he went to Thessalonica, remember? And he went to the Jewish people in the synagogue. Before he went to Thessalonica, Paul was in Philippi, a place called Philippi. It was there where he was confronted with hostility. Is there where he was thrown into jail. After he was released from jail, he went on to a place called Thessalonica, and there he received opposition in the synagogue. 
After that, he went to Berea, and the Jews from Thessalonica followed him to Berea, hassled him there, showed hostility there. So he moved from there 300 miles, that's not a simple jog, all the way to Athens, and what did he experience there? He experienced opposition there from the pagan intellectuals. So where does he go from there? He goes to one of the hardest places you can go to, a business center, and it's actually a moral center called Corinth. I want to suggest to you at this point that here we have a man who's probably frustrated, probably depressed, and likely burnt out. And I think a lot of times, I don't know if you've ever experienced burnout in your life, but a lot of times when we think of burnout, we think of going through maybe a, a bit of a period of maybe two or three months where things are difficult and then you just come to the end of your rope, your mind gets foggy, and you don't want to get out of bed, you're a bit depressed, and so on. I want to suggest you here on the basis of the context here that that's not often how burnout works. Burnout is usually... Uh, after accumulation of various experiences, not just over months, but years and years and years. I think his fuel tank is basically on empty. The Lord knows that. So he says, Paul, okay, I'm going to give you an encouraging word. First of all, notice verse 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, because I have many people in this city who are my people. You know, sometimes we come to the end of ourselves, and when we do, don't underestimate the love of God in picking you up out of the difficult situation which you are in. It may be not according to your timing or your way, but as a child of God, he sees and he helps. And that's what he did with Paul. He didn't leave him to his own depressive devices. So what does he say? He says this. He says, number one, don't be afraid, Paul. I'm not going to let any harm come upon you. So what I want you to do is, with that kind of confidence, I want you to continue speaking. I know you're probably afraid to do so because of the kind of reaction that you're going to get. Keep on keeping on. Speak the gospel. And here's the reason why. For I have many people in this city who are my people, and basically saying, I want you to go get them. I want you to bring the gospel to them. Now, I want to bring out one one technical point here, and that is this. It requires that you take a look at verse 10 very carefully. First of all, in verse 9, it says, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. He says, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for or because... He says, I have many people in this city who are my people. Now, you take a look at that last phrase. And here's the thing. The the last four words there are not in the original language. For I have many people in this city who are my people. So in the original language, it simply reads for this. No one's going to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Period. So you might ask the question, then why add words if they're not found in the original language? And sometimes translators will do this for sake of clarification. So God says, Paul, keep on speaking. Don't be afraid, for I have many people in this city, literally according to original. Now, notice what it doesn't say. God didn't say, keep on speaking, for there are many people in this city. No, he says, I, I have many people in this city. And in saying that, he's saying, actually, they're my people. 
So what the English Standard Version rightly is doing is simply clarifying the matter. It wants us to know that those who are in that city, just not, they're not, they just don't happen to be Corinthians there in need of the gospel. No, they are people who God has his hand on already. And now, Paul, what I need you to do, says the Lord, I want you to bring that gospel to them because they're already mine, but you need to bring them in to me and draw them to me through that gospel. The gospel is the instrument whereby God brings in his chosen people. And that's why the evangelism enterprise is never an empty thing, right? There's, there's, uh, you know, there, there's no situation that's so hopeless, and there's no person who is so dark that we just have to write them off and say, you know, I have tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and man, I've just given up. That's a natural reaction that we have, Right? Or maybe, maybe you're here and you go, I am just, I have, you get this in the ministry sometimes, or you have people who are well-meaning, and you just, you know they're children of God, but they're struggling with certain sins in their life that they're, 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 they keep arising, you know? And in the ministry, you're not looking for perfection for people. That, that only, <laughs> there's only ones that have been perfect, that's Christ. But what you want them to do is you want them to keep fighting. That's the thing. Keep fighting, keep striving for godliness, and realize oftentimes the final victory can be far away, but you win little battles along the way, see, going on to victory. The the thing you you get fearful about is when people stop fighting sin in their lives, because in that way they're saying, basically, I've given up on myself. Never give up, and never give up knowing people who are in need of the gospel. Don't give up on them either. Because if the Lord's, he's going to draw them. Now, I could bring out a number of scriptures at this point, but for the sake of time, let me just cite one. It's a very well-known one from John chapter 10, verse 14, where Jesus says, listen to this carefully. He says, as I lay down my life for the sheep, okay, so I've laid down my life for them, they are mine. But he goes on to say, very interestingly, he says, I have other sheep that are outside of this fold, namely those for whom I've laid down my life and who are walking with me. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must call them, and I must draw them, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Why is that? Because they're mine. They just have yet to be brought in. Let me complement that citation of Jesus with one other passage, but it's not even from the Bible. It's from one of our confessional standards called the Canons of Dort. Well worth your read. This is what the Canons of Dort says. The fact that some, through the ministry of the gospel, repent and believe, listen to this, is not because of man. In other words, not because, well, one day they've decided, I think I'm just going to believe the good news of Jesus. The reason why they repent and believe is not because of man, but because of God who chose them in Christ. When did he do that? When did he choose them? You know, the Bible tells us before all time. That boggles the mind. It's something that I cannot understand, but I accept, because very clearly in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, God chose them, he called them, he granted them faith, and he brought them to Christ. He did this through the Holy Spirit who opened their closed hearts, quickened their stubborn wills, so like a good tree, they began producing fruit in the Christian life. Now, that statement from one of our confessional standards is not just a doctrinal statement. Man, it's at the heart of our encouragement, knowing that no matter how hard a person can be, or no matter what the situation looks like that appears so hopeless, 
Those things cannot transcend and overpower the designs of God in a person's life or a people's life. You know, the, the history of the Christian church, and maybe you have stories like this as well, where a situation did appear so hopeless. But God took hold of them, and he drew them. He drew them. You remember um, a few weeks ago, I, I told you this story. I'm not going to rehearse everything. But I told you the story of this, this young girl named Abby Gardner whose, whose parents and siblings were slaughtered by a band of Sioux Indians uh, near a place called Spirit Lake, Iowa in 1857. And as I, I told you before, she was um, kidnapped by the Indians. They slaughtered her family, but they kidnapped her, and they eventually brought her to a little town in South Dakota across a river called Flandreau, South Dakota. And she stayed with the Indians. They eventually let her go at a certain point, but not at that point when she was in South Dakota. And as while that she was there, she witnessed also um, the murder of a 19-year-old pregnant woman in a bend in the Sioux River there. And uh, they, they dragged her in the river, they clubbed her, and then they shot her. So the point is, is that when Abby Gardner looked at this particular Sioux tribe that had killed her family and killed this young woman and kidnapped her, all she saw was darkness. And after this happened, um, a number of these Indians were uh, placed on reservations. And there is one place in particular where there were missionaries uh, in South Dakota. And the missionaries knew what the Indians had done, but kind of like the Apostle Paul, they went to the Indians and they brought the gospel to bear upon the lives of the Indians. And by a supreme, beautiful miracle of God, God worked in the heart of not just a couple of those Indians, you know, but, but hundreds, hundreds actually came to faith. And what they did is they started, those Indians stayed around uh, Flandreau, and what they did is they started a, a little church, which is an existing Protestant church still today. It's the oldest Protestant church in South Dakota, and it's a mile north of town. And I was there a couple of months ago. It's a beautiful, serene place. And so you have this white church, and it's a historical marker in front of it. And that church is on a beautiful grounds that actually overlooks the bend of the Sioux River below, and there's farm country all around. And the reason why I say that is a number of years later, Abby Gardner, when she's older, actually went to that church and worshiped with those Sioux Indians who had, who had been converted. And this is, this is what she says when she went to worship with them. She said, the events of the past rose up and passed before me like a moving panorama, and the changes I saw were truly marvelous. I attended a service in their church and listened to an impressive sermon delivered in the Sioux tongue to a large, well-dressed, and attentive congregation. What once seemed an impossibility became a living reality. There, there, a body of Sioux Indians congregated together in praise of him whose name is love. It kind of reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah said when he said, the Lord's arm is not too short that it cannot save, and his ear is never too dull that he cannot hear the prayers of those who draw near to him. And then this one final thing very quickly, and that is this. What happened to those Sioux Indians and what has happened to people throughout history is something that happened to the Corinthians themselves. Because in verse 11, we read that 
the Apostle Paul, he stayed a year and six months in Corinth teaching the word of God among them. Now, that's a significant thing. What that tells us is that Paul himself not only obeyed the Lord, but he himself had confidence in the gospel because a year and a half doesn't seem long to you and me, but it was long for Paul because he would go from here to here and here to here and he'd stay a few days or a few weeks at a time. Here he stays a year and a half discipling people in the faith because he knew the power of God to transform them. Then some years later, he wrote to them, and we find this in the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says. Remember the kind of context that they came out of, the dirty city of Corinth. He writes to the Corinthians, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's very direct with them. But then he goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Did you know that that phrase, such were some of you, some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. He says, he didn't say, this is what you are now. He says, that's the way you used to be. But the Lord took hold of you, and he washed you in the blood of the Lamb. So I leave you this. Our passage reminds us, as those who live in a major metro center, there is no city so dark, and there is no person and no situation that is so hopeless that God cannot save them. And thus evangelism is never an empty enterprise. Because if God has chosen them, he will bring them in. We're not called just to wait for God to do that. The way and the means that he brings them in is through the gospel that we speak and the gospel that we live out. And if you are here and you've never come to Christ, do not underestimate God's ability to change your heart and draw you to himself. And if you have a son or a daughter or a mom or a dad or a brother or sister who in your mind just can't seem to get it and will not cross over that barrier between themselves and God. Do not give up. Pray, look for an opportunity to speak a kind word to them, and wait. For if the Lord has his hand upon them, he will draw them, but maybe in a way, and maybe at a time that you're not expecting. And that's our confidence. That's our confidence. Okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace. We're thankful for the encouragement and the confidence that you give us this morning, not to hold our tongue, but to speak forth and to live out the gospel in the lives of others. Lord, whether they be very near and dear to us or whether they be visitors who come to this church, Father, give us a spirit of trust, knowing that your ways are always right and they will be accomplished. We pray this all in Jesus' name our Savior's name. Amen.